this week, I take me out to my J house and around the table section and movie soundtracks and my niece. A special guest, Matt Lerlaw, and a BSN. Just like in a song from days of yore. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me as always, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, it's episode 256, 256, our last roundtable discussion of season five, Jay. Cool. We've uh, had a good season of uh, conversations here. Hopefully this doesn't disappoint. No pressure, guys. <laughs> <laughs> it, it would be a it would be a real downer to end on a... On a bad episode, but I don't think this could, we can do a bad episode with this topic. We're going to be talking about soundtracks for movies in the 1990s. Uh, this was a big decade for soundtracks, and we're going to talk about uh, some of the best ones, some of the reasons for that, and um, to help us do so, we have a pair of gentlemen who have previously joined us for roundtables uh, from the northwestern Ohio region, home of the northeast. Sorry, northwest, northeast. <laughs> Criminy. It's Thanksgiving weekend. I'm still not from Toledo. I'm still overloaded on turkey and carbs, so I might be a little off. Uh, combined with the many hours spent driving in the family truckster across the country, uh, Matt Wardlaw, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here, guys. Where can we find your uh, scribing on the internet? Uh, you can find my stuff all over the place, um, ultimateclassicrock.com being one place, and also uh, Cleveland Scene Magazine, where in the past uh, few weeks I've talked with uh, Jason Bonham, Cowboy Junkies, and Corrosion of Conformity. So I like a few different kinds of music, I guess. What was the uh, Jason Bonham stuff? Uh, was that about his uh, Zeppelin experience? or? What? Yeah, he's coming to town here in a couple of weeks to, uh, to do a show with that uh, Jason Bonham's Led Zeppelin experience thing. So, but it was cool. I also got to talk to him about uh, playing with Phil Collins last year, rehearsing with Phil Collins, and got some, you know, kind of some good dirt on what that was like. So, cool to talk to him. The awesome. the unretired Phil Collins. The unretired Phil Collins, and I would say the most interesting nugget that he threw out was that he said that if if the rehearsals never go any further, that he got to play in the air tonight with Phil Collins, and he's he's like, that's all that really matters. So that's kind of an interesting hint that maybe. Uh, if Phil does return to the road, he might spend a little bit, behind, a little bit of time behind the kit, which would be cool. And those are the only two living Led Zeppelin drummers. Yeah. Right. Yep. The only two people that have ever played with the band. Hmm. That's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. Yep. Jason dropping, dropping knowledge. Also joining us, Mr. Eric Peterson. Eric, we can find you on the podcast. Contributing yes. to the podcast, I believe it's called Love That Album. That is correct. Where are you I, in the country? I forgot. I'm in uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan. Ann Arbor, Michigan. That's yeah. right. Which just took a, a beat down from the Ohio State guys. But I don't think you'll get a lot of lip from us. Uh, don't worry about it. I, I'm uh, not a fan. So Yeah. <laughs> I just enjoy it because uh, as, a, as an NFL fan, seeing Jim Harbaugh lose because I, I find him somewhat grating as a personality. That's yeah. uh, that's my only enjoyment in that. I don't really, not a, much of a, 
Buckeye fan. He's not a likable person. No. (laughs) Uh, We're going to talk about soundtracks, and we're going to talk about the 90s. And I threw out some questions so that we could get the ball rolling. One of the first ones is, and this might be a obvious one, but I'm still going to ask it. Were the 90s the high point for movie soundtracks? And what I mean is, was the quality of the music and the quantity of soundtracks superior to previous decades to the 80s and 70s and then what followed in the 2000s? Or is that a a bit of um, hubris on my part because we're a podcast based on the 90s and we simply want to say that the 90s were the best? So I'll throw it out to... uh, to Eric first? Um, I would say it was. I think um, if you look back at the 50s and 60s, they were still kind of figuring out what was going on with uh, studios and record labels trying to get together to make interesting soundtracks. And they started to get a formula down. You get to the 70s and you get the uh, where the director was really in charge of a lot of film decisions in the movies. And there were some great soundtracks in the 70s, but there was still that that studios and the uh, the industries, the two industries trying to figure things out. I think it started to come together in, in the 1980s. You start to see some some of the uh, the kind of movement towards soundtracks that made sense for a film and as an album. You, st- you can talk about things like the John Hughes soundtracks, where he was kind of plugged into um, an underground scene or a you know, not mainstream scene that he was able to incorporate into his films. But I think by the 90s, they really kind of got the synergy and they really could focus in on having music that made sense within the context of a film, but it also could stand on its own. Interesting. I think John Hughes is a, an important template for a lot of the soundtracks in terms of what he did in the 80s. Mr. Wardlaw, your thoughts? I would agree with Eric. Eric went further back than I did. I mean, he went through the 50s, 60s, and 70s. I mean, I just look at, um, obviously, there were a good number of successful soundtracks in the 80s. And um, as as Eric said, I mean, there certainly was effort in that decade to kind of make the music fit with the movies. But I think uh, the 90s really seemed to bring about a more visible effort to program the music that would actually fit into the movie. And you actually, um, you certainly still saw evidence of bands Sometimes being on a soundtrack because they're on the label, but um, it seemed like everything was just a little bit more thought out in general. Um, even if you could sometimes smell the politics that got them onto the soundtrack, it seemed like there was um, some sort of effort put forth to not just hand over a leftover song from album sessions. I mean, they would either write something specifically for the movie or record something cool um, more in the 90s than I think it happened in the 80s. I want to bring up some comments from folks that chimed in on our facebook page uh darren bevington leach said for me the 90s was when soundtracks became great likened to a good mixtape you could discover bands that you didn't know but end up liking the crow is an example of that others other great soundtracks were judgment night pulp fiction even judge dread even though the movie was awful which we'll get to uh pulp fiction really opened my eyes to acts i didn't think i liked like Al Green and Cool in the Gang. Now, there's a couple of things I want to pull out of that statement. First of all, I think the mixtape aspect is an interesting one because you have the ability in the 90s, obviously mixtapes existed in the 80s, but in the 90s you could burn, you know, mixed CDs. And in a lot of ways, 
they are like a, a good mix CD if they're done well, the soundtracks. So that's, and you could pull songs off of those and then just like you could pull them off of an album, but there's a, an eclecticism to certain soundtracks, whereas other ones are a bit more, uh, like I'm thinking of like the Clueless soundtrack is a fairly, I would say, um, consistent soundtrack, mm-hmm. whereas there are other ones uh, like Can't Hardly Wait actually contains, although it's some songs from the 90s, it actually contains some older stuff as well. I mean, the yeah. song, the movie's based on a replacement song from the 80s, so. Can, can I can I jump in there and, and sure. just mention that one of the interesting things about the Clueless soundtrack was there was three or four uh, covers by 90s bands of kind of classic 70s and 80s tracks, like uh, I think World Party does All the Young Dudes and mm-hmm. Cracker does Shake Some Action and the Muffs do Kids in America. Yep. And then that sits alongside originals and uh, contemporary songs from the 90s. And that kind of fits in a nice way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, doing those reinterpretations definitely makes it sound more contemporary. And for that movie, which is all about high school kids, you can't pull tracks from 10 years ago. You can reinterpret them in a cool way, but you can't put those original tracks in a movie with, you know, 16 and 17-year-old kids. It just doesn't make any sense. Well, unless you're making Dazed and Confused. Well, yeah, the movie set then. <laughs> and but yeah, the, I, I think there was a – there seemed to be a trend, though, of that happening with the, the covers. Yeah, whether a lot of cover actual, songs. Yeah. Whether they that be was, ironic or not. That was something that I looked up. Um, well, that just kind of came to mind was um, I'm sure you guys are familiar with a guy named Ralph Saul, who's a guy that I you know still don't know a ton about. But like if you look up his like Wikipedia entry, I mean, the thing that really made me think of him was um, the Kraft soundtrack, which has like Heather Nova doing I Have the Touch and Love Spit Love doing How Soon Is Now. Um, but he also did like the Saturday morning cartoons, greatest hits. But if you look at like his Wikipedia entry, like he just had tons and tons of soundtracks, um, including he was the music supervisor for a ton of uh, questionable soundtracks in the 90s, like Encino Man and Biodome um, <laughs> so, from the Polly Short catalog. But um, I mean, he also did the um, 10 Things I Hate About You soundtrack. Uh, and he was one of those guys that really seemed to love to have bands cover other bands. I mean, Letters to Cleo. They have um, a cover of I Want You to Want Me by Cheap Trick on that one and another cover of, I think, I want to say What's what's So Funny About Love, Peace, and Understanding. But he was he was probably one of the uh, you know principal guys that like did a lot of soundtracks in the 90s that either had a few covers or in a lot of cases, the entire soundtrack was bands covering, covering other bands. Mm-hmm. So he was a big contributor, but that was something I never really looked at was just all the soundtracks that he was a part of in the 90s all the way up to like present day. And man, he was associated with some 
really bad soundtracks. Um, but he was a guy that, like, if I saw like a soundtrack that had like a bunch of bands covering other bands, you could almost smell that that was one of his productions. And a lot of times you'd look in the liner notes, and sure enough, you know, he's the guy that was, you know, behind it and had basically, you know, maybe recorded all the songs in a studio using like a house band of sorts, and just in some cases had the singers from some of those bands just come in to, you know, sing with the house band, you know, so they would just get like, say, well, I mean, he did a McCartney tribute pretty recently where it's just like he doesn't bring in all of Hart, but he brings in Anna Nancy, Nancy Wilson from Hart to basically sing over the track that's already been recorded by the house band. So he was a guy that um, seemed to have like an assembly line going for a lot of that stuff in the 90s. And And you bring up an interesting topic, which is works two ways, is a soundtrack... Can a soundtrack be saved by a better movie or in the inverse, can a bad movie be saved by a, a good soundtrack? And the one that comes up in some discussions is Empire Records, which has a really good soundtrack, but it's not a great movie. Although nostalgia wise, you know, I want to say it's a good movie, but it's, it's really it's not a good movie. It's not it's not a well-made movie, but no. it has a cult following and it is kind of fun in its own way and it does kind of capture a moment in time right. and uh, while i've heard complaints about that's not realistic it's not really supposed to be right uh, you know i know I, it's the kind of thing that the people maybe our age are going to sit around and watch together and reminisce and laugh at or whatnot right it's watchable that's i guess what i what i can say I, i'm not going to say that it was a technical masterpiece but it's competently made and it's fun well when the two things can come together sometimes they can you know, they complement each other in a way that they're better together than alone. Yeah. <laughs> you know, sometimes, like I'm thinking of um, like some Wes Anderson movies, the way that they use music. Some of the music that he uses, if you listen to it on its own without the visual or the story, it's sort of like, well, this is weird. You know, it doesn't really move you. But mm -hmm. then when he puts it together with the visual, it takes on this whole other meaning. Um, I, I suppose you could say the same thing about Empire Records a little bit. Well, one of the, the films that was our soundtracks that was already mentioned was The Crow, which I think is maybe maybe one of the greatest examples of uh, the soundtrack appropriately reflecting the mood of the film. And we also one of the things that we haven't mentioned is that the '90s is when we really started to see directors who had come from the music video world be able to start calling the shots and putting their own stamps on films because they had. Some of them had proven themselves in the late 80s with the studios and say, oh, yeah, they made this movie that made us money, so we're going to let them run with what they want to do next. Mm. And in the case of The Crow, Alex Proyas had, I believe, been a uh, in excess video director before that. That's a really good point. It should be noted that for the uh, Empire Records soundtrack, only about a third of the songs actually in the movie are on the soundtrack. There's another, like, 30 songs that are in the movie and you had mentioned about politics making a difference when it comes to the picking the songs in the soundtrack. I'm wondering if that's a situation where, you know, and I don't know if that's the case, but you know, you get like the gin blossoms and toe the wet sprocket and better than Ezra all ending up on the soundtrack. Whereas bands like the ass ponies and throwing muses there are in actually in the movie and poster children and those bands, but I don't think they were on the same label. So, mm. Well, the biggest omission, and I'm actually holding my copy of the soundtrack right now, is Guar. Guar is actually in the the movie, right? And they're not on the soundtrack. 
And th- this also is a soundtrack that's got covers. It's got An- Evan Dando covering um, – uh, okay, what's the band? Um, Big Star. Thank you. And uh, I believe the Mises are covering uh, Generation X, if I'm not mistaken. You might be correct. And it had a huge breakout single with a girl like you, yes. Collins. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I would think that with a movie like Empire Records, there'd be a combination of politics, but also, um, you know, I think that it would come down to like the labels just being only willing to shell out so much money to pay artists, you know, for their song to appear on the soundtrack. I think it also has to do with the uh, the sales of the soundtrack. If you go back and look. It's a uh, big 80s soundtrack like The Big Chill. It was sold so well that it was, here's more music from The Big Chill. Yep, Dirty Dancing. Yep, and if you look at uh, American Graffiti, I mean, that was a two-LP set that later became a two-CD set. Yeah, and there's a second Dazed and Confused, uh, one that came out a couple years later with like a bunch of the songs that weren't on the original soundtrack. And yeah, there are a couple instances. I think there's a second Train Spotting one. Um, for the additional songs from that. And I think probably part of the reason with the Empire Records was that was actually a huge failure at the box office. Yep. Uh, yeah. So that's probably why that didn't get any more, uh, in addition to whatever politics were involved, it probably hindered their releasing an Empire Records soundtrack part two. How does the how does the business of this work? I mean, it sounds like you guys kind of have, a, Matt and Eric, a little bit of uh, knowledge of this. Like, are you, you're basically paid... For the placement on the soundtrack as a, as an artist, and then is that it? Or do you get paid like based on sales and like? So what do you guys know about that? What I know is is mostly anecdotal, and I've got got a couple of friends whose music have been on soundtracks, uh-huh. and um, like I all right. So for me, one of the big '80s ones is Return of the Living Dead, and my friend's band was on that mm-hmm. that soundtrack, and the guy who put the soundtrack together was a friend of theirs and so he was like you guys would fit on this you know i need some songs and uh you know i guess the label which was enigma went and pulled a bunch of acts that that were on their label that would fit with the movie so i think sometimes that happens you know we talk about like tarantino wes anderson uh paul thomas anderson um you know all the david fincher all those kinds of guys who um or allison anders who are all music people and they know what they want in their soundtracks. So I think that they kind of had the clout to go, I want this and I want this. Although there's stories about like Tarantino wanting certain songs he couldn't get for Pulp Fiction. But after, you know, after their big breakouts, after Desperado or Pulp Fiction, they were able to say, hey, we want this or we want that. And it were able to, to command those, those, um, those inclusions. Is that uh, the artist saying, uh, we don't want to be on a soundtrack, or is the artist saying, we want mm. this amount of money? Probably sometimes the-, the artist, probably a lot more the publishers. Gotcha. Because hmm. it just seems like as you look at these, there, sometimes it doesn't appear to be a pattern, like how these decisions are made. <laughs> you know, yeah. like some of them are really well constructed, others are like thrown together, some include music from the movie, some mm-hmm. don't. I mean, the way they're tagged are all different. Sometimes they're tagged as various artists, sometimes they're tagged as artists sometimes they're tagged as soundtrack like it's kind of just a, a like an extra bin of stuff you know of like here's a bunch of other music released in various for various reasons that have something to do with movies so the other thing i know is that um some my brother and i had a record label in the, in the late 90s early 2000s mm-hmm. my brother was managing this local band here 
and we met Lloyd Kaufman from Troma Films at a comic convention. He bought one of our records. He liked it. He said, hey, let's see about getting you on a soundtrack for one of our films. And so my brother had a little bit of contact with their office, and what it came down to is they had signed a contract with Go-Kart Records, which was an indie punk label, to provide the soundtrack. So sometimes, I'm especially at the indie level, I think that's what was happening, mm. was, uh, you know, like one of the ones that uh, probably – most people don't know is a film called Glory Days with Ben Affleck. Anybody seen this? So, I think well, I saw that with a Z. Yeah, and it's it's basically the last year of college for at UC Santa Cruz. the The soundtrack is all like kung fu records, uh, you know, fat records, pop punk from the '90s. And so, for the most part, it's those bands. There might be one or two two bands that aren't from that scene, but it seems like they just had a contract with this whatever in you know moderate size indie label and they provided the sounds and in the case of that film you know it fit the it it fit the film pretty well So was there ever a case where you guys uh, bought a soundtrack simply based on the artists who were on it and without ever even actually seeing the movie? Absolutely. Yep. Um, I think for me, this doesn't really count as a, count as a buy, but um, So I Married an Axe Murderer was a promo that I got at the record store. And, um, I mean, that's the one that has, like, the cover of um, Bay City Rollers Saturday Night done by Ned's Atomic uh, Dustbin, I mean, mm-hmm. Brother by Toad the White Sprocket. Um, and um, the Honeymoon in Vegas soundtrack, uh, like with all the Elvis covers, that's another one that I still don't think to this day that I've seen the movie. And that kind of, like, looking at those two soundtracks as I was looking at that um, question, that kind of made me think about um, how Columbia or Sony, um, you know, the Honeymoon in Vegas soundtrack was one of the early releases on the Epic Soundtracks label in 1992, and I think that really showed the dedication that that label had to churning soundtracks out to kind of capitalize on the 90s movie soundtrack cash boom. It doesn't look like they were very successful in the long run. I, what I saw online said like they basically put out 11 re- releases and you know made like 40 million, um, but it was kind of interesting to see labels kind of really getting into the game because like if you look at like that so i married an axe murderer soundtrack every single artist that's on that soundtrack is a columbia artist and that's kind of it's almost free promotion in a way right i mean because of them they're going to put all this money in the movie yeah like you don't have to sink a ton probably into the soundtracks to get them to sell a little bit if you put some artists on it that have a couple that have some name recognition you get a single on the radio and well, the, that Laws you know. song was huge. It was a huge single. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think that's what kind of stuck out to me was that, like, the soundtrack itself doesn't feel like a throwaway, even though it's, like, basically all, like, label artists. It's, it still feels like one that they put the work in to, like, make it a good soundtrack. Mm-hmm. For my part, I would say uh, the most obvious one of all, singles. Actually, the soundtrack came out about two and a half months before the film did. Oh, so, yeah. So a lot of people bought that. 
without even being able to see the film. Interesting. I didn't realize yeah. that. <clears throat> yeah, I remember that soundtrack was almost as big as like any of the band's records at the time. Yeah, no, that was huge, big. And that's also one that's got it's got a cover on it, and uh, you know, it's got some then current bands that were getting kind of big, and then some bands that were going to get big, and mm-hmm. then a couple of legacy acts. Hendrix. Is mm-hmm. on it. Yeah. Yep. So there's one I need to throw out there because I had a a, a negative uh, experience with this. Uh, <laughs> there's a movie by Jim Jarmusch in the '90s called Dead Man, mm-hmm. featuring uh, Johnny Depp, and the soundtrack is done by Neil Young. And when I saw there was Neil Young had done a soundtrack, and I was like, "Oh, well, I'm a huge Neil Young fan. I'm going to just buy this sight unseen, basically." And it's just guitar noise, and it's minimalistic. <laughs> like it, it's not anything that you. I mean, maybe if you were like into the, I don't know, the Weld album, that would be uh, <laughs> the nearest <laughs> comparison. But I, I saw like ten minutes of the movie after that, and I was mm-hmm. like, oh, okay. Well, I understand how this works in the movie. Yet this is basically unlistenable mm-hmm. as a record. So that was one case where I made a mistake and regretted it. Uh, I think I got out of a used bin, though. So, Are there any good examples of uh, in the 90s uh, uh, where a stu- uh, song was specifically written or almost scored for a movie scene that you guys can think of that really worked? Hmm. It's a lot of these... Yeah, I, I, I actually have one. Um, okay. One I was going to bring up later that people probably have never heard of, but you might have heard the song. Has anybody seen the movie Still Crazy? Yeah, uh, I've seen that. Yeah. British film about a 70s uh, rock band that's staging a comeback. Mm-hmm. The songs, are, I think, are co-written by Chris Difford from, I want to say, Squeeze or Crowded House. Yep. Anyways, the, the, the big song on the album is called The Flame Still Burns. And uh, it does sound like 70s rock, but it also does have kind of a 90s flavor to it because that's when the film was made. And I think that, uh, you know, it's a cheesy movie. It's an enjoyable movie, but I get chills every time I see the big finale rock scene where they play this song. Mm. So I think that's a case where where the song was written for the the film and it worked extremely well. I guess I would throw in um, – <clears throat> The stuff that Founds of Wayne did for that thing you do in terms of uh, oh sure yeah, oh written, yeah written for a I mean when I think about the challenge that they took on to do that I mean that's kind of crazy like write us a song if you just do that the the one the thing you do song like write us a song that that could be a hit like is a legitimate hit in the sixties but also it has to be current enough sounding that it won't be not believable you know what i mean so like all the stuff they wrote for that it's sort of like uh very much of the time but it sounds just modern enough to be relevant (laughs) did any of you guys did any of you guys get the nuggets box set that came out in the 90s Mm -mm. you guys know the the nuggets i've heard of it but i haven't no i haven't purchased it so so basically nuggets was uh lenny k from the patty smith group put together this album in 1972 there were all of these kind of one hit wonder garage rock songs from the 60s things like amboy dukes and uh the was the remains you would know all these songs if you heard them 
mm-hmm. you know, the electric prunes and the standells. So in the 90s, that was expanded into a four-CD set of these great garage rock songs from the 60s. And in the liner notes to the box set, they actually evoke that thing you do's popularity as one of the reasons that it was t- they felt it was time to expand this what had originally been a two LP set into this four CD set, saying that you know that this music is still as relevant today, either as a nostalgia or a callback, or you know it, that bands today are kind of getting what was going on with with this music, mm. and uh, you know they were kind of drawing that parallel. And I think that that thing you do is, is uh, first of all, I think it's a great film that people forget about. It's a nice crowd pleasing yeah. film. For and sure, the music the music is solid. It mm-hmm. is solid. Uh, kind of reminds me also uh, the Backbeat Band, right? Yeah, the, absolutely. I mean, now those are all covers, right? They're all Beatles covers, but it's yep. um, at the time whoever was hot, Dave Grohl and who else? Uh, well, Dooley it's and, it's Greg Dooley from the Wigs and Thurston Moore from Sonic Youth and right some other people. So it's like using that material in a very you know, of the moment relevant way that works. Films like that were huge. I mean, you had the commitments as well. Yep. Uh, yeah. What was the other one? Velvet Goldmine? Yep. yep. And that was all songs done in the vein. Well, most of the songs were done like in the vein of. Well, there was a, a lot of glam covers on there. Yep. 20th Century Boys covered on there. And, and you get like Teenage Fan Club and you get um, Shudder the Think, Placebo. And yep. then you get, you know, Grantley Buffalo, but at the same time, you've got the Wild Rats, which is like, uh, it's, what's it, Don Fleming and uh, Jay Maskus and uh, Ron Ashton from the, hmm. the Stooges. So, Jay, let uh, me ask you, for your your question, were you talking about, like, bands that were, like, made up for, like, the the like the, the Lone Rangers and Airheads? Like, are you talking about, like, that? No. No, well, we slipped into that, which I think is kind of tangential. But uh, I was more saying, like, did anybody write something specifically more of almost a score, you know, or uh, a specific song to be used in a movie and a for a specific scene that ended up being a really good song? I guess it's hard to know because you never know if the person had the, the music beforehand or not. Yeah. Well, I, and I can think of another one, which is the It Can't Rain All the Time from The Crow. Because I actually have the score, which has the demo of that written by the guy who did the score, uh, Graham Ravel, I think is his name. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. You see his name all over these soundtracks. So I, I believe that was written for that film and that scene. Weren't some of the, I'm trying to remember back to the conversations, but for the private part soundtrack, were there, weren't there some songs mm-hmm. that were written specifically for that? Um Oh, the Great American Nightmare. Was that written for for use in the movie? I mean, specifically for a scene. I don't know if it was specifically for a scene, but it I mean it features Howard Stern's like vocal yeah. on it. So yeah, I would have I'm to imagine. Thinking of like uh, I don't know Saturday Saturday Night Fever. You know that obviously those those songs were written for that movie and used to be used in the movie. Even like Eye of the Tiger. I mean, wasn't that written for Rocky? I mean, by Survivor to be used for the way it was used. Even some of those, um, those cheesy, like, uh, montage, (laughs) those montage scenes in those movies. Like there were songs, I think written for the, you know, they even reference like what's going on in a really cheesy way. Well, I think 
South Park sort of murdered that in the in the nineties with, right. with the South Park movie and and uh, in the TV show. I mean, yeah. that sort of like earnestness was kind of mm-hmm. obliterated. Well, if you, you want to talk about songs that were actually written for specific films and scenes, you can always talk about the Bond films. But unfortunately, I can't think of any great Bond themes from the 90s. I don't think yeah. we had too many Bond fi- films in the 90s. Didn't Chris Cornell do one? I think that was later on. Yeah. Um, the yeah. the 90s were a low point. For oh, the you know Bond what? Films. Speaking of Chris Cornell, we can go back to the single soundtrack and the story about um, him writing seasons for – for that soundtrack is that he had grabbed the the demo tape that was supposed to be the Citizen Dick tape and started writing songs based on the titles on that tape. Interesting. And I think that's probably one of his best solo songs that, that I can think of, for sure. Well, why didn't he take on Touch Me, I'm Dick? Um, I don't know. Maybe <laughs> Mud Honey would have had an issue with that. Uh, we'll never get to hear that one. Yeah. So just for completion's sake, uh, there were three Bond movies in the 90s. GoldenEye was the first one. The music was uh, written by Bono and the Edge and performed by Tina Turner. So not a what I would call a relevant to the '90s in terms mm. of. Uh, then you had Tomorrow Never Dies, which came out in uh, 1997. In that one, they went with like just a score. There, like there are some artists on the soundtrack, uh, Pulp and um, Shell Crow and some folk like that. But the actual like you know how they do the theme. Mm-hmm. For whatever album that was, um, not done by like a major artist, or as far as I can. What was the uh, oh, I got one. Was this the 90s? The uh, the Prince Batman theme, Bat Dance, yeah. Was that a 90s movie? The no, original? I think that's 88 or 89. Is it? And then, uh, what was yeah. the Batman that had the Smashing Pumpkins and U2 and the offspring covering the damned? Yeah, that I think that was uh, well, there's two Batman big returns. Yeah, there's two big Batman uh, soundtracks in the '90s. There's Batman Begin or Batman Returns, and then um, Batman and or no, not Batman Returns. I think it's Batman Forever. Batman Forever. Oh, and then Batman and Robin, because Batman Returns is just the one with uh, it's the second Tim Burton one. Yeah, it's Batman. It's also funny, like uh, a lot of these soundtracks are dis- they disappear, yeah, from, from the streaming services. Like I'm looking for some here, and as you guys are mentioning them, and they don't show up. I don't know if the was it the beginning is the end of the beginning or something like that. Was that yeah. the name of the special public songs? I don't know if that was originally, not originally, but I don't know if that was specific for the movie or if that was just something you know 
Billy Corgan, you know, yeah. writes a billion songs, supposedly in terms of um, his his you know recording habits of having <sighs> lots of material, and he actually contributed a lot of songs to a lot of different soundtracks. He did stuff for some like indie stuff, indie movies. I think the one was called Stigmata mm-hmm. that he did. And then he did, um, is he on the, did he have a song on the David Lynch Lost Highway soundtrack? I think yeah, that's what it. I was just thinking of was, okay. was Trent Reznor and the Perfect Drug on that soundtrack. Yeah. As we're talking about songs that might have been written for the movie. Like, I, I, I feel like not necessarily that song, but certainly he's a guy that was, you know, writing stuff specifically for films. Mm-hmm. So it must it's it must be Batman and Robin because on the Batman Forever soundtrack, you have the the Hold Me, Thrill Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me by U two, yep, and then mm-hmm. obviously Seal's Kiss from a Rose was the massive single. But you have a lot of interesting. You have Nick Cave on there. You have Method Man, Sunny Day Real Estate, the Flaming Lips, the Offspring Sunny cover, Day Real Estate. Yeah, that's crazy. Mazzy <laughs> Star, uh, Massive Attack. PJ Harvey. So that's a pretty eclectic. Uh, do they soundtrack. actually work in all that stuff in the movie? I don't. Or just that's a great question. I have no idea. Yeah. And then in, the, in Batman and Robin is when you have the Smashing Pumpkin songs. Then Bone Thugs and Harmony. Um, R. Kelly has a song called Gotham City. So perhaps R. Kelly wrote a song. <laughs> a, a slow jam Terrific. for Gotham City. You Terrific. also have REM, Jewel, the the Goo Goo Dolls, Soul Coughing. Uh, underworld. All right, you so. just said Goo Goo Dolls. So how about that song for City of Angels? Mm. Do, yeah. we, do, do we think that was written for the film? Because that's where that hit came out of. You know, that's a good question because I know that there's some backstory. Do any of you guys know the backstory for that song? Not really. No. So I, I think... Talking about Iris? Yeah, was Iris. Or, yeah. I think the story with that is... He had, after the album had come out with all the big singles, uh, with name and whatnot, he had had a lot of uh, writer's block, and he needed, he was like, you know, trying to write songs, couldn't finish anything, and then he got approached to write that song for the soundtrack, and he was able to write it because he could write it about something he wasn't trying to write about personally, like he was able Mm -hmm. to focus on a subject, and that got him out of his writing funk, and then that's how it got. That's how the next album, Dizzy Up the Girl, got finished. There you go. I think that's. I'm trying to remember the behind the music. That does sound familiar to me. Yeah, that does sound starting to ring a bell. So there you go. What about, in, in that case, yeah, he wrote it for the for the movie. What about uh, one I pulled here for my list was um, "She's the One," the Tom Petty soundtrack for that movie. Are there any other examples of soundtracks that you guys can think of for the, in the '90s that that completely are one artist, basically a, a record, but released in the context of a film? Because hmm. that seems like well, that the, the Dead Man soundtrack by Neil Young. The '70s. <laughs> there you go. The horrible deal. That one. Yeah. Yeah. Not I really. Can't see any of my list here? Hold well, on. Let me let me check. I gotta I gotta check the date of the release on one. Yeah, and of course it's not going to tell me. <laughs> Hold on a second. I know this is this is great podcasting. Um, ooh, no, sorry. The one I was thinking was two thousand one. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't have any either. I think that became more in vogue 
or, or maybe it was it happened before and it happened again but in the 2000s it seemed like a, a lot of times artists were and it's it seemed to happen more with electronic artists where you'd have like the chemical brothers did the entire soundtrack for the hannah movie and trent reznor and atticus ross did the social network and then they did mm-hmm. the girl with the dra- not the girl with the dragon tattoo was um gone girl mm-hmm. and then um uh, m83 did the oblivion soundtrack that tom cruise movie so like you did have but it was more like techno and dance and you know electronic artists who were doing that i can't think well, of rock the, artists the one that i brought up the still crazy soundtrack not all of them, but I would say a good 90% of the songs were written by the same team to be pre- presented by the band. And I think that if you had films that featured like one band as the, the main characters of the film, that you probably saw that, that kind of a – that happening. Oh, uh, The Virgin Suicides, right? The that was what, Air? That yeah. Yeah. That's one. Oh, that's a good – yeah. Yeah, yeah I can't think of rare. any other ones. Well – the first love, last rites. Um, I need to double check this, but I believe that either Shudder to Think, um, oh yeah. yeah, either wrote the whole thing or they curated it. I don't know if they actually put like of all the songs. Well, back to my uh, issue with tagging with a lot of stuff. I'm looking at the record <laughs> on iTunes, and it's some are credited to Shudder to Think. Some say unknown for the artist. And there's this one last song in here credited to Joan Wasser and Stephen Bernstein. Bernstein. So j- just as a side note, when I when I look my these albums up, I look on Discogs because mm. I find that they have uh, tend to have more complete information. Are you familiar with that site? Oh yeah. Yep. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, speaking of the the lust or the the uh, Empire Record soundtrack, just as an aside about Discogs, there's the band Luster is on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found their vinyl. Of their only album on Discogs for like ten bucks. Nice. So that's now in my collection. Because <laughs> I was like, well, I'll, I'll never see this again. So I can't even find it on CD. I might, might as well buy it on vinyl. Uh, yeah, that that website is great for finding weird stuff. One of the questions that I, I asked, we've talked about it a little bit, but do you guys have a favorite cover from any of the? Because we talked about a lot of covers were done for these soundtracks. Any particular covers that stand out as, as favorites? Yeah, I definitely have one. And since we already talked about the Goo Goo Dolls once, um, I like their version of Don't Change. It's on the Ace Ventura, uh, When Nature Calls soundtrack. Hmm. Hmm. That's a good one. I did not know that that... <laughs> I'm going to add that to the list. Ace Ventura, When Nature Calls. <laughs> I'm telling this could be like five roundtables. We could do one of these every year. So I, I'm going to throw out two real quick. Um, one of them is uh, from the, the film SFW, and it's uh, Paw doing Surrender by Cheap Trick. Oh, yeah, that's a great one. Huh. And the other one, and this is – I don't know if we want to even get into this topic, but um, songs from the Showtime original series Rebel Highway. Does anybody know what Rebel Highway was? No. No. It was this Showtime project where they got these directors like Joe Dante and John Frankenheimer – and Robert Rodriguez to make films. They were hour, hour and a half films that were based on 1950s uh, drive-in fare. And they all had names like like Drag Strip Girl and uh, Women in Prison. Robert Rodriguez's one is Road Racers. 
but they got a bunch of artists to do covers of 50 songs for the soundtrack. And it's got stuff like, like Iggy Pop doing Come On Everybody and uh, Sheryl Crow, uh, I'm Gonna Be a Wheel Someday. But there's a band called the Wild Colonials that do a song called Evil that's pretty oh, great. Yeah. yeah, I like them. And most of those Rebel Highway uh, films are up on uh, Netflix streaming. They're not great, but they're kind of fun. And they have a lot of young actress and actresses that would later become famous in them. So if you ever want to see Paul Rudd do his James Dean, check out Runaway Daughter. So did they put out <laughs> soundtracks of those? They just put out one soundtrack. And I'm not sure if this was just one promo. Mine's a promo copy. I had a friend who was the A&M rep for a local college, and he gave it to me. And it's just got... You know, 12 tracks. It was one from from uh, each of the films. I think there was 10 or 12 of them. Nice. When Meat Puppets doing House of Blue Lights, um, Charlie Sexton, Race with the Devil, Blues Traveler doing I'm Walking, that kind of stuff. Hmm. Jay, did you have any particular favorite cover uh, that you came across? Yeah, I always liked the um, Amy Mann's cover of One on Magnolia. Yeah. I always thought that was good. Actually, that's one of my favorite soundtracks from the 90s. Uh, and I always have a, I don't know, a soft spot for the, the Wigs, Afghan Wigs version of Can't Get Enough of Your Love. Yeah. Girls. That and Be For Real are just, they're too good covers because they yeah. kind of capture the sloppiness in yeah. bar band sort of origins of, of that band. Mm-hmm. One of the soundtracks that I wanted to mention, because I, I feel like it's kind of underrated, is uh, for a movie called Angus. Yes, I actually have that. Yes. Now that that was another one of those like movies that did like nothing, but the soundtrack's really good. Well, that movie's I, I have a soft spot for that movie. It, it, I think it's it's more intelligent than it had any right to be. Oh yeah, and it's um, it's sweet. And it's not really it's not like a lot of potty humor or anything like that, you know. And and everything isn't perfect in the end, but right. It's a lot more mature for being. It's a, it's a it's probably was marketed as a teen movie. Oh, yeah. It's actually not quite what you would expect, but it has like Green Day and Ash and Smoking Popes, and it has a, a rare Weezer single from earlier in the band's career. Not single, but track that wasn't on the Blue album. Yep. Um, and it's got uh, Goo Goo Dolls and Love Spit Love and uh, a bunch of other bands that it's a it's a really good soundtrack. A lot of fun. And, and uh, isn't that, Green Day, that Green Day song, I mean, that's a good example of a song that if that was one of their like throwaway tracks, that was a great th- th- throwaway track. I was going to say, wasn't that song a, a hit? Like, it absolutely I, was, yeah. Okay, totally. yeah. Yeah, because of the soundtrack. Okay. Because it's. I think it's just like probably on their greatest hits, but it's not, uh, it's not an album song. One of the things that's interesting if you go back and you look at especially 80s soundtracks, not so much in the 90s, is that – Oftentimes you'll find um, like Cheap Trick were really well known for doing a you know throwing off a song for a soundtrack, and they'd go in and they'd write something in a couple of weeks. And what was good about that was that they didn't have time to overthink it, they didn't have time to overproduce it. It was just like oh, song for a soundtrack, we're not going to do a cover. Let's just pump this out. And sometimes you got direct, but sometimes you get really good stuff because they were either being inspired or they had to work through it in, in a manner that they didn't, like I said, didn't overthink it. And I think a lot of times because of the lack of time they had to work with, maybe they're just like dashing into a studio in a day, you know, in the midst of being on tour and stuff like that. And, you know, 
you can hear the energy in those recordings where they just dropped in, did like half a day's worth of recording and left. Yeah, and they're recording one track or two. They're not recording yeah. like a full album and trying to make everything cohesive and, you know. We should talk about the Godzilla soundtrack. <laughs> because this is one where it seemed like they like they anticipated this being a huge blockbuster movie, so then they went out and got artists. Jamiroquai? <laughs> We've got to get Jamiroquai for this. Well, I'm thinking of the Wallflowers covering heroes. Clearly, there was going to be a hero moment in the movie where they're going to have that song playing. And then you've got Puff Daddy featuring Jimmy Page doing Come With Me. Yeah. Didn't somebody do Cashmere for that? Um, that Right. But you have the Green Day Godzilla remix of Brain Stew. I don't know what that is. I have to look that up. But then you end up with like Rage Against the Machine and the aforementioned Jamiroquai and Fuel and Silver Chair and Days of the New. Days of the New. Got to pull out all the stops and get Michael Penn. Yeah. How does Michael Penn get on that? That is a. (laughs) I don't know, but hey, no uh, myth, man. (laughs) That Wallflower song was huge, wasn't it? Oh, it was gigantic. I mean, I think I think it uh, it kind of outshined. Um, what was the the cover of uh, the 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 wall from uh, the faculty? Oh, oh god, yeah. yeah. Which they thought was going to be huge as well. I just listened to that, and you can I don't know. I'm maybe I'm reading into it, but when you listen to that vocal, mm-hmm. you're like, oh my god, this is a guy that's like about to die. Yeah, oh, he's yeah. going to die for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. And you're like, I I. He even sounds shouldn't like, laugh about that. He's but, maybe missing, no. like at this point, like missing teeth or something, and he has no energy. Like you can just hear his voice is like messed up. Like you can just yeah, hear it during the performance. There's stories out there about how bad he looked when he came in to like record his stuff for that performance. I mean, the writing was on the wall. Yeah, it's kind of creepy to listen to now. And now that's an, uh, an example of they were called Class of '99. It was Martin Lenoble. Tom Morello, Stephen Perkins, Lane Staley, and Matt Serletic. I don't know who Matt. Who's Matt Serletic? He's the guy that uh, produced the uh, big Matchbox Twenty records. Oh, so he must have been the producer on the track. Yeah. Okay. There are a couple instances of that where you got a bunch of different musicians together to just just make a song for a, a, a soundtrack for an album. The other one, the backbeat one we mentioned can you guys think of other examples of forming unique yeah. bands what you got Matt? uh main t from the austin powers movies oh yeah oh, yeah that's matthew sweet and who else susanna, susanna hoffs and that's, I think, where they met to go on. You guys checked out their covers albums? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Those are pretty great. So yeah. I think that's where they met to do and started doing that. And then um, on the Tank Girl soundtrack, I don't know if this works quite as well, but on the Tank Girl soundtrack, there's the Magnificent Bastards. Which yeah, I thought that was a good tune. Yeah. It, it kind of made me wish there was more to that. Um, but it's they do the Mockingbird Girl song. Do you guys know who else was in that band? Was it just studio people that he was playing with, or was it an actual band that he that it was Scott Weiland for the 
right. dancing around mm-hmm. that. But I think there it, were some other folks of note. I'm not I'm not placing who they were at the moment, but yeah, I think so. Because I can't yeah. find any info. It's not on Scott Weiland's like Wikipedia page of like who else was in that band. So I'm not quite sure who he worked with. The only thing it says is that. Um, oh wait, here we go. I just found some stuff. Sessions drummer Victor Indrizio, uh, Vander Schloss, or Xander Schloss, and Jeff Nolan on guitars. And I Bob believe Xander Schloss was in um, Social Distortion, I believe, or Fear, one of those two bands. <laughs> I could be wrong. Uh, he's the Circle Jerks. Circle Jerks. Bass Joe player Strummer. for the Circle Jerks, the Weirdos. Yeah. Uh, he appears yeah. in the movie Repo Man. Yeah, I think he's now uh, one of the uh, alt-country guys these days. Yeah, he worked with a lot of people. Oh, he's on the the infamous, which we have to review this at some point, the Mike Watt solo album from 1994, Ball, Hog, or Tugboat. That's a great album. Oh, actually, nice. Yeah, I actually, totally. I actually talked about that on an episode of Love That Album. So it's one of my favorites. So uh, I have another band. You guys remember The Last Hard Men? Oh, yeah, Sebastian yeah, Bach. Jimmy Fleming... Kelly Deal and Jimmy Chamberlain. Uh, that was put together for the Scream soundtrack. Is that right? So speaking of the Scream soundtrack, one of the questions that you put out there was uh, soundtracks that were big disappointments. To me, Scream was one of them. I felt like um, this being a meta horror film that they could have actually had metal bands or punk bands that dealt with uh, horror music. And at the time, I was a really big horror punk fan. The big one that's missing is the Misfits, the Reformed Misfits, actually wrote a song for that soundtrack that wasn't used in the film. Hmm. That was, I think they later had a video directed by George Romero for the, for the song. Uh, another movie in that genre that maybe is a better example is the Buffy the Vampire Slayer soundtrack, mm-hmm. which comes early in the decade and to me kind of sets the template for the how eclectic I think a lot of these end up being. It's to me that's what kind of defines the nineties in a lot of cases is you just have this eclectic mix of stuff and everything from CNC music factory <laughs> to Ozzy Osbourne, Rob Halford, which might be like his first solo time. He, he's put a solo song on a record at this point. A really heavy song on here. The cult is on here, the divinals, Susanna Hoffs, Matthew Sweet. It's like really weird mix of See, uh, I would I would uh I would counter by saying to me the soundtrack that really set up what was going to become the 90s soundtrack was the Pump Up the Volume soundtrack. Yes. Which also, speaking of of bands that were put together, we also saw a lot of times a band with a singer that wasn't a member of the band. In the case of Pump Up the Volume, it's uh, one of two films I've ever seen where teenage girls jump up and down to the MC5's Kick Out the Jams. In this case, it's played by the (laughs) Bad Brains with Henry Rollins on vocals. Hmm. Wow. Cool. If anybody wants to know, the other film is uh, Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. I would not have guessed that. <laughs> Wait a minute, what? Yeah, there's a scene there in the record store, and they put on uh, the MC5's Kick Out the Jams. He made Halloween 2? He made a version of Halloween 2. Oh, uh, okay. So there's two Halloween 2s? Yes. <laughs> That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> a lot of people don't like that film. Uh, it's okay. But at any rate, back to pump up the volume. I- <laughs> I really think that did, in a lot of ways, set the template. Because we're talking Soundgarden and Sonic Youth and the Cowboy Junkies and yeah. Concrete Blonde covering Leonard Cohen. I mean, the Pixies are, are on that soundtrack. And I have a Neville. 
yeah, there's a that's a case where they had a whole bunch of other music in that film they could have used on another soundtrack. And that's a good film. Oh, it is. I think it holds up really well. Yeah. I think that film, if you, once again, going back to the 80s, if you want to look at what teen films became, you start with Over the Edge in 1979 and you end with Pump Up the Volume. Yeah, I think that's a good a good lineage there. It's I'm still looking. released in 1990. Yep. I'm still looking at the uh, Buffy the Vampire, Vampire Slayer soundtrack. I did not know that Susanna Hoffs covered Oingo Boingo's We Close Our Eyes on that soundtrack. Mm. I'm, I'm going to have to track this down. And that um, that Rob Halford track, Light Comes Out of Black, I mean, that's a good tune. Yeah. So then you have the Aussie track, which, you know, a song called Party with the Animals, I think it's like uh, a rule somewhere that that has to wind up on a soundtrack. That's got like a, <laughs> that's a soundtrack, soundtrack song title. Right. It sounds like a leftover. Uh, yeah, for sure. Now the the bad brains and Henry Rollins does help us sort of slide into the phenomenon in the '90s, which was the pairing of artists. Mm-hmm. It happened on a couple soundtracks. We covered this on a previous episode, the Judgment Night soundtrack. Um, there are some hits and there are some misses on that soundtrack. Uh, <laughs> it also happened on the Spawn soundtrack where they paired rock artists with techno artists. Yeah. Are there other examples, maybe not of entire soundtracks, but of other situations where artists were combined in that format where you just, it was just like so-and-so and and -and so-and-so did a song together. Yeah. I've got one. The, um, until the end of the world soundtrack filmed by them vendors, which I believe is from 1990. Okay. Or 91. Um, we're talking, uh, what did I see? Patty Smith and Fred Sonic Smith. They were married, but they never really worked together before that that I'm aware of. Um, I believe that, um, Johnny Cash worked with U2 for this, even though that song's not on the soundtrack. Yeah, I think you're right about that. Uh, Jane, Jane Seabury and Katie Lang. Hmm. Um, and let's see. And there's a, you know, um, there's a, I mean, there's there's tracks by Nick Cave and REM and Elvis Costello on here, but I feel like that was that was a case where there was they were trying to get uh, artists of a who who were the sound of the future quote sound of the future working together t- as part of the vision of that film, which is a mess of a film, but it's really interesting. Oh, you can add by the way to your soundtrack that include uh, "Kick Out the Jams," "Varsity Blues." Nice. I'm uh-huh. to take a look. Monster Magnet covers kick out the jams for that soundtrack. Oh, I think I knew that. Of course they do. <laughs> yeah, that's a Cause, great cover too. Because uh, you know, in terms of soundtracks, you know, I, I guess why would you of all the bands? So you got Green Day, Foo Fighters, Fastball, Collective Soul, Third Eye Blind, Red Cross. Of all the bands on that soundtrack, why would you have Monster Magnet cover kick out the jams? Like, wouldn't it make more sense to have, like, Green Day or Red Cross or somebody like that? I don't know. Probably. I, I have one for you. Yep. Kim Deal and Bob Pollard covering Love Hurts. Oh, that's the, the same soundtrack that has FSK, whoever they were, with Dave Lowry from Cracker. Oh, right, right. That was um, David Lowry and I think Mark Linkus from Sparkle Horse. And that's uh, the Love and a 45 soundtrack. Yep. Wow. That's, that's right. Weird. So I guess you could say that we've covered a lot of weirdness. 
yes in this episode can i can i offer up one of the worst covers sure and i just discovered it this week for this show uh the spin doctors are on the philadelphia soundtrack <laughs> <laughs> and and they cover have you ever seen the rain wow Which i couldn't put a worse combination together <laughs> uh so yeah there's that it's as bad as you think it is <laughs> that's just awful yeah we're at the hour mark so i want to get everybody to um talk about their favorite soundtracks overall for the 90s ones do you think that sta- really stand up as an actual album on its own uh, aside from what the whatever the movie is or what have you um let's go around and, and pick a soundtrack or two that you think is a worthy listen all the way through matt i'm gonna start with you um, you know, for me, I think that the one that I go back to the most, believe it or not, is the uh, Reality Bites soundtrack. I think that, um, you know, the comment that you read from a, a listener earlier in the show about, like, you know, kind of being a mixtape and music discovery. I mean, I think that they're it's a good combination of, like, say, bands you knew and maybe, you know, like, say, newer bands, whether it's, like, say, Indians doing Bed of Roses or obviously Lisa Loeb doing Stay that, like, um, you know, there was... There was an interesting opportunity to take home maybe some uh, new music by bands that you weren't familiar with, um, combined with um, bands and artists that you were. And I thought it was all pretty, you know, well put together and still holds up. Cool, Eric. Okay, so I'm going to do this real quick because I've got two. One is um, Tales from the Crypts presents Demon Knight. Yeah, which was a pretty great metal soundtrack. I think that does hold up well. Um, the other one. Is, is a little film that most people don't know. It's called Ed's Next Move. And it starred Kelly Thorne, who is currently on uh, Mysteries of Laura, and Matt Ross, who was on um, oh the show with the Mormons out in... Uh, come Big on, Love? Robert. Big yeah, Love. Yes, thank you. He was the, the evil son in Big Love. But um, it's got s- some great little indie bands on it. And uh, there's one called Ed's Redeeming Qualities that Kelly Thorne actually plays with in the movie. And they're kind of like quirky, folky stuff. And then there's a great um, kind of uh, like 90s pop song by a band called The Comedians that I can't find anything about. So I think that one's a great one that holds up. Jay? I'm going to go with Beautiful Girl soundtrack. I mean, oh, I think yeah. it's, a, it's a nice mix of current and classic. All It's all very like pulls off the sentimental note very well too um, in what they chose and – it does a good job for me, at least when I when I listen to it, of kind of experiencing the movie without watching the movie because the music's all pretty much all used um, in it. So, and it's probably the one I've listened to the most um, since it came out. I actually rebought that one recently, Jay, because I thought that Pete Droge's track wound up on another one of his records, and apparently it didn't. So I had I had to rebuy that just to get that track. But hmm. it's a great soundtrack. Yeah, I'm gonna go a couple. Runners up. One is pump, pump up the volume, which we talked about. Uh, I love that one. That thing you do. Again, we talked about it a little bit, but I really like that one as well. Uh, the one that was really kind of important to me because it introduced me to an artist is the Goodwill Hunting soundtrack. I just did not know about Elliot Smith before that. Mm-hmm. So Goodwill Hunting introduced me to Elliot Smith, and then into Heat Miser and. That whole thing. So that that to me is one that I think really stands up and 
is actually like a good just primer for the artist. I know it's not all him, but there's other good stuff on that, like Luscious Jackson um, and some other stuff. But uh, yeah, that's the one I would go with. Uh, but there are so, so many that we didn't even get to talk about, like With Honors and yeah. Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, all sorts of stuff that we'd... Uh, <laughs> That we missed. Well, out. yeah, there were like mega, mega soundtracks that really, if you look back at them, for some, some of the artists, they account for their career in the '90s. So, like, or at least their commercial success in the '90s. So, like, I mean, even somebody as big as Bruce Springsteen. I mean, he had two huge singles, and I think in the '90s, and both of those were from soundtracks. I mean, Aerosmith. Like, yeah, you know, they pretty much existed because of what they did in the 90s at least commercially it was a lot about what they did on the soundtrack to Armageddon um, can I quote Empire Records and just say rap metal rap metal Whitney Houston yeah. <laughs> there you go yeah yep so what I what was I, the, uh, the, t- the Titanic uh, song oh yeah Celine I mean, Dion that's another one Celine Dion yeah I mean like just huge mega songs off of soundtracks so. so I got a couple sitting here that I just want to read the titles of real quick Gross Point Blank. Yes. Mm. Cool World. Yeah, I was oh. going to say that. That's a, I think that's one that kind of gets overlooked, that um, yep. that Cool World soundtrack. I mean, that had some great stuff on it. I'm surprised that doesn't pop up on like more like you know 90s soundtrack best list. Uh, another one that's very similar, The Doom Generation. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, PCU, which includes Mud Honey covering uh, Pump It Up. Yeah, it's <laughs> a good soundtrack. And believe it or not, I still – or I know what you did last summer has got a lot of great stuff on it. Yeah. Typo Negative doing Summer Breeze, L7 doing This Ain't the Summer of Love, Soul Asylum, Southern Culture on the Skids, Our Lady Peace, um, Corn, Kalula Shaker. I mean, yeah, there's some pretty good tracks on that one. Oh, yeah. We could we could just start naming all sorts of ones that we didn't yeah. even get a chance to. Um, so many. Yeah, there's so many. We do need to thank also – uh, Steve Muzinski and Christine Calandra, who chimed in with their picks of uh, records that are uh, soundtracks that they liked, which we mostly brought up. Clerks, we didn't mention Clerks, that was a big one. Great cover of uh, Shooting Star by um, what was then Golden, Golden Smog. Smog. Yeah, uh, which was a super group of sorts. Of course, the all important Berserker, which would. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you can add mall rats to that that yep. as well. Another another and that one had another uh rare early Weezer song. Suzanne, I believe, is on that mall rat soundtrack. Mm-hmm. So gentlemen, we need to wrap this up. Eric, when is uh, what's your next podcast for or or con- contribution to the uh Love That Album podcast coming out? So um I, a couple weeks here in, in December, we've got two things. One is I did a compilation edition that is eh, about half an hour of me just talking about various singles that I enjoy and then we're going to do what we call the uh, shooting the shit round table which is what we do <laughs> try to do it at the end of the year where uh, the whole kind of the crew for love that album get together in two groups and talk about our top five albums of the year both old and new so that will be out sometime in December probably the um, the compilation edition will be out first excellent and we can find you on the interwebs where Twitter or anything like that. 
you can just find me on Facebook and I post in the uh, Dig Me Out group enough that if somebody wants to hit me up, they're more than welcome to there. And, you know, I've actually had a lot of people say some nice things about my previous uh, appearances on the show. So thank you all for that. Excellent. Uh, Mr. Wardlaw, what is uh, in your pipeline? I think in the pipeline, there's the uh, Jason Bonham interview that I mentioned, but um, also for the uh, music nerds that like Joe Satriani and Steve Vai, I talked to um, Stu Ham recently. So um, that's going to be running here in the uh, next week or two, um, popping up online in conjunction with the show he's playing here in Cleveland um, next week. Cool. We can find you on Twitter at, uh, is it M Wardlaw? Yep. That's right. And... Um... Perhaps someday we will kick off that Van Halen podcast as a uh, <laughs> as a as a monthly or, or perhaps even bi monthly. There's a lot of lot of like this week there was plenty to talk about. Right, like, lots of controversy in the yeah. Van Halen world. Lots of controversy. I think uh, Greg's basically hosting that podcast on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, we just need to transcribe it and then uh, turn it into an audio uh, feed. Uh, then... At this point, any thought I have on Van Halen, I just ask him. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Like, I have this thought. I have to share it with someone. Oh, I'll just add Greg. There you go. If you like what you heard, please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at iTunes. And as always, uh, if you want to request an album, we're very close to the end of the year, but you can do so by visiting our request review page at digmeoutpodcast.com. For Jay, I'm Tim. We're out, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. Look up.